Hi folks, I'm Lee Franchel and welcome to my writer podcast, This Now, in which I share pieces of my work, usually, that I hope will help you make the most of whatever season of life you're in. This episode is a bit different, however, and I'm very happy to introduce to you my first interview guest, Luke Wilson. We talk Disciples of the Apostle John, Doctrines and Dan Brown, and possibly get a little controversial in places. I've always found Luke's blog, That Ancient Faith, very helpful and thought-provoking. Luke has a way of taking fairly complex theological ideas, unpacking them and making them easy to get our heads around, and I do recommend reading him. For those of us who are Christians, our faith is obviously central to helping us make the most of the seasons of our lives, and I hope Luke's work will help other people as it's helped me. This episode was recorded on the 14th of January 2022, but not live streamed. The video was posted on the 22nd of March 2022. Luke's book, 40 Days with the Fathers, is available now, and I'll include appropriate links in the description. Welcome to episode 6. Hello folks, I am very happy to introduce our first interview guest, Luke Wilson. Luke has a BA Honours in Biblical Studies and Theology and has been reading and studying the works of the early church fathers for over five years. After being involved in various short-term missions to South Africa, he currently lives in Devon, England, where he co-founded WebBoss Limited, a web development software company with his father Kevin. When not working on his company or a new book, Luke writes frequently on his theological blog, That Ancient Faith tries to read more books than he has time for, or spends time with his wife Lucy and his daughter Amelia. Luke, welcome to this now. (laughs) I know you, of course, from going to the same Bible college, but we didn't really know each other that well at Bible college. We really just sort of got to know each other a bit more on Facebook later on. Mm, Yes, we were sort of like passing circles, weren't we, rather than immediate friendship circles. But I have found reading your blog very helpful. And, okay, um, at least it does. <laughs> yeah. It's nice it to know. often made me rethink things and see things from a different angle. So I'm, I'm very happy to have you as my first guest and introduce you to my viewers. Hello, viewers. <laughs> you have a great interest in the early church fathers. Many people may be thinking, they lived a very long time ago, why should I be interested in them now? So what would you say to those people? I'd say that they are important. Some people have various opinions maybe about them or think they're all Roman Catholic. There's lots of internet meme nonsense that floats around that, you know, that mischaracterizes early church. Mm. But really, they're like our forefathers in the faith. After the New Testament, you've got people that the apostles physically passed on their teaching to and things like that. So if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have such well-defined doctrines like the Trinity, you know, that Mm. minor little thing that we hold to so dearly. Just a tiny detail. Yeah, (laughs) something everyone's quite strong about keeping as a gateway of orthodoxy, if you like. And we wouldn't even define it the way we do if it wasn't for the church fathers mm. spending their time and efforts trying to nail down the right kind of wording from scripture and proper exegesis. So even the canon of scripture itself, the New Testament, knowing what was considered authoritative and from the apostles and all that kind of thing, we wouldn't know about if it wasn't for their writings telling us as such. So they're quite important to how we get to where we are today. 
I used to pretty much write them off. I think Augustine put me off a bit because he had some ideas about women that I don't quite agree with. But I was looking at your book and I just read the first chapter and I was like, okay, now I need to get a copy of this Didaki thing and find out what it is and, and find out more about it. Yeah, that's one of my favourite texts. It's an odd one maybe to be a favourite because it's kind of just like a church handbook, but I like it because it is a church handbook from like the end of the first century. Mm. And it's such a good glimpse into what the church believed and practised within the lifetime of the apostles even. So it's kind of like a little gem. Yeah, from what you said about it in the chapter and the bits of it you shared, I could see how it could cast a light on the biblical texts and help me understand them better. Mm. But also, I think it helps to sort of go beyond the scriptures because, I, you know, when you read the Bible, Paul and everyone who writes, they write with sometimes a lot of assumptions of their own culture and understanding that we have to take a lot of effort to figure out now because we're so far removed from it. But they will say things and write things because they knew that the people they were speaking to would understand that. So they're like, oh, go and baptize people. We have to put a lot of pieces together to understand like what they meant by that, how they practiced that. Or we just assume that it was a certain way because of things in Acts. But then texts like the Didache shine that light, like you say, onto practices that were assumed or known about at the time, but weren't necessarily written down explicitly in the New Testament. So like in the chapter on baptism, it's saying like, preferably full immersion in running water. Then it's like, but if you can't do that, just dunk some over your head three times. Yeah, any water is good. If it's cold water, whatever, if you can't get a full immersion, then tipping over your head three times is fine. So it's a whole range of things that yeah. you wouldn't necessarily get from the New Testament, but we know from that text that it was acceptable in different forms. It wasn't always full immersion if you couldn't do it full immersion. Yeah, I just put something together. Maybe the pouring it over the water was to get the water running to, to get that, like the best approximation of that that they could get for running water. Just a thought. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Because they use the term living water, mm. which is a term obviously familiar that Jesus talks about, living waters, which I think sometimes we spiritualize as something else. But when it's used in such a normal context there about baptism, it's talking about mm. running water, you know, like a river or something. Yeah. Which sort of you know, demystifies that whole thing of living waters as if, as if it's some ethereal thing it's just actually water that's not stagnant <laughs> if that's right then actually pouring water over would be more biblical than a baptismal font if it's right <laughs> yeah as it's supposed to depend how much it has to be moving water i suppose but yeah that's what you mean also i think jesus talking about living waters and things he will give us living waters if we understand it as flowing water running water i think it just helps give a better perspective on that that the water it gives is constant it's not a one-time thing so like the spirit yeah. is living waters it's a constant flow if we understand it in the terms of what they're actually saying as living waters rather than just this spiritual you know living waters if you know what i mean Good point yeah i imagine that jesus deliberately used that double meaning mm. So yeah, so that's the other side of this, reading the early text, it helps illuminate the New Testament at the same time because it brings that extra perspective and cultural aspect that we might miss. How did you become interested in the Church Fathers? Because I, I believe that at Bible College you weren't all that taken with them and then somehow later on they yeah. just got grabbed by it. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny, really, because at Mattersea, I was sort of of that opinion of what do we need them for? Who are they? Why do we, should we care? And I was just like, well, we just need the Bible. That's it. Who cares what anyone else says? And yeah, we do need the Bible, the scriptures, but that shouldn't be to the exclusion of other people and texts and books, even modern ones that can help mm. understand and bring out the text to us. So basically, long story short, around five, six years ago, maybe longer now, I kind of got to a point at church where I was just like, is this really it? Going through the motions every Sunday. I was at like a non-denominational church. It was just, you know, three songs, 20-minute sermon, two more songs, the end, have coffee and biscuits. <laughs> Communions maybe thrown in there every now and again as a, you can come and do it if you like kind of thing. Sometimes they might pray for people, you know, but the main format was pretty fixed. Three songs, sermon, two more songs, the end. I was like, you know, is this is this really it? Is this what Jesus came and died for so we could come in this monotonous routine every week? Is this really what the apostles were doing in Acts? Is this all they did? You know, sing a bit, hear a bit, go home. No interaction, really. It's just kind of very much felt like an audience, mm. but not really participating. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go as far back to the beginning as I can, find all the texts I can, as old as I can, and read them all and see if the common sort of idea is that modern church, Baptist, evangelical, whatever style, is the pure, undefiled church style of the Acts of the Apostles. To get one up, if you're in a house church, even better, you know, because doing it like the Apostles. <laughs> they didn't. They meet in homes, though, therefore we meet in homes kind of thing. Keep it as simple as possible, because that's the way it appears in Acts. I was like, well, let's see if it is, see if that holds up. And I found it to be the complete opposite. And what I mean by that is that, yeah, in Acts, you see the apostles, they all meet in homes. And there's not a lot of description about what they do other than break bread, hear the teaching of the apostles. And Paul sort of brings a bit of that out about how they meet weekly. They take money collections. They take communion. But it's all kind of, like I was saying earlier, it's written in a way that his readers understand what he's saying without having to explicitly outline every detail of it. Because why would you if you're writing to people? Yeah, I mean, if we wrote a letter to someone today about church, we wouldn't say, oh, and then you do this, then this, then this. You just like, you go into church, take communion, you sing worship, whatever. You don't have to detail it because the people know the common stuff. So I read in the early church, like the Didache, there's a whole section on there on the Eucharist, as they call it, you know, Thanksgiving, Greek word. And it's very liturgical. There's very long prayers that they say before they break the bread and drink the wine. There's very long prayers they say afterwards. It's all very much what we associate with Anglicans, Catholics, Lutherans, that kind of thing. And then the more read, the more you get into like the early second century. Got Justin Martyr, it was around 150 AD. He actually gives an outline, like a step by step description of a church service in the early second century. And he is giving it detailed line by line because he's explaining it to people who don't know the faith. So he's like, this is what we do and why we do it and how we do it. So it's a very good insight to what the church looked like within 50, 60 years of the apostles. Yeah, 50-ish years, 100 at most, you know, mm. within the century of the apostles dying and the next generation sort of taking over and that. So the practices have been handed on. There's, they were all very clear. You know, if you read a lot of the early church, they're all very much like we are keeping the faith that's been passed down. This is the traditions that have been handed on to us. They were very careful to keep them not to innovate, not to break that tradition and not make up new stuff. 
So there is a strong lineage there of the apostolic doctrine and traditions. And as you read it, if you read that description, I don't have it to hand, but roughly off the top of my head, it's very liturgical again. It would sound very much like an Anglican service or something like that. So it flipped everything on its head from what I've been told, basically. I was always taught, you know, liturgy and all those sort of the things that you see in the more traditional denominations was all like, you know, medieval inventions that came later and corrupted the true faith and the pure undefiled practices of the apostles, the Bible. And it was kind of the opposite. Those things were there from the beginning and kind of got lost. So we've come down time. I can't remember what you asked me now, but I hope that answered it. (laughs) (laughs) How you became interested in them. I think we All right. Yeah. Got me on my soapbox now. (laughs) So, yeah, that whole journey then was like, right. So, I'm in a church that doesn't follow any of that except for like the very bare bones essentials of worship and sermons, but there's no intercessions. There's no, well, there is communion, but it's rare. But it's also not regarded as quite as sacred as the early church either. It's a whole other rabbit trail to go down of like the real presence and things like that. And I remember you and I had a disagreement about this on Facebook about what the communion was originally like. And we agreed to differ in the end, I think. But it's certainly very interesting. Recently or a while ago? Oh, a while ago. Yeah. Uh, it sounds familiar, but I can't remember how that went now. It may be that as I read the Didaki and stuff like that, I may come to change my mind. I mean, it changed my mind reading it all. I was very much, you know, what most people are brought up with if they're not in a traditional denomination of it's memorialist. You do it in memory of Jesus. There's nothing really more spiritual to it. It's just something we do to remember the end. And writing the book, going through like the first four to 500 years and seeing the consistent doctrine and belief of this is the real presence. Jesus is spiritually, truly in the elements somehow without trying to describe it too much. But they're all very much, you know, the true flesh and blood of Jesus that we partake. Justin Martyr, again, he talks about it transmuting into our bodies as we eat and drink to become more like Christ. So I was just like, you know, this has challenged me a lot more than I expected. And maybe I need to rethink things. If this is what was held to for centuries as the true orthodox belief they say was passed on from the apostles. And I was like, well, who's right? Who's wrong? I need to reevaluate some of the things I held to and have been taught and just accepted growing up. It's been a yeah. fun journey. <laughs> Your posts made me think again about conditional immortality. For listeners, this may be sounding a bit technical. It's basically whether you automatically live forever, whether you're in heaven or hell, or whether hell has a limit. Is that right? Uh, essentially, yeah. Because the, the Bible actually often talks about destruction rather than... Anyway, you explained it much better in your blog post. Go to the <laughs> blog, find the post, read it there. The blog, that ancient faith, go find it. Anyway, I sent us off at a tangent there, sorry about that. <laughs> so... How do you feel that these things that you've learned from the fathers have impacted your own life and faith? I know you said that you've changed your mind about several things. Yeah, because it's challenged a few of my assumptions, or I guess things that I didn't really think about, not question, because I had no reason to really until then. I was just, you know, brought up in a certain style of church. You go there, they do things a certain way, you kind of assume that's just the way it is, how everyone's done it for always, because sometimes that's what you're told as well. And then reading how the ancient church did things differently and kept it that way for a very long time until fairly recently in history. I mean, things only really shift in big ways like after the Reformation, which was 400 and something years ago now. 
because obviously then the split from the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther doing his thing and everyone else, Calvin, Zwingli, the rest of the reformers, everything branches out from there and everything's a bit more up for grabs because they're trying to get away from actual things that were added on by the medieval church that weren't necessarily biblical or apostolic. So it was just traditions that are built up over time. Martin Luther was rebelling against that. Well, not rebelling, it's probably the wrong word, but challenging that by his reading of the church fathers and, you know, the people that came before him and saying, you know, I can't see these practices in the other church. I can't see this as an apostolic tradition. So he wrote his 95 theses, nailed it to the door of Wittenberg, and he was against indulgences, which was, you know, the church selling oh, yeah. a free pass to sin, if you like, and I would giving out his assessment. Yeah, you know, and taking money for shortening people's time in purgatory and things like that. I think it was the church wanted to build a new cathedral or something, so that was their fundraising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, abuses happen over time. No one's immune to it. We're all human. People get in positions of power and do things wrong. Sometimes those things get ingrained for centuries and then no one questions them. And then someone does and it kickstarts something that changes the whole world. <laughs> I have always thought yeah. that when the church became mixed up with the state, that caused a lot of problems because then it became politically expedient for people to say they were Christians and, and it became, as you say, a place where they got power. To- yeah, that definitely didn't help. Yeah. I mean, you could see it today, even in America, evangelicalism and Republicans seem to be a little bit too cozy. You know, what we can see in the news and things, it's the church and the state getting in bed when they shouldn't be. Mm. History repeats itself, sadly. Yeah. Um, anyway, you have a new edition of your book, 40 Days with the Fathers, which you can now brandish for the general public. Ta-da! Yeah, this is my copy to make sure it's all... Okay. And I believe there's also a volume of companion texts that you've got out to Yes. So this one is like a daily reading plan, if you like. So each (laughs) chapter is a day across 40 days. It's me summarising the text and giving quotes and relevant points, bringing out my own thoughts and things about them and designs. So, you know, each reading should be fairly short. 10 to 15 minutes, you know, quickly you read if you just read this one. Whereas I did the companion book, which is just the translation of the text themselves with no commentary. So you can read it alongside this one if you want to read the whole text in full rather than just the snippets I provide. Cool. I didn't translate that, but it sold the English versions of those texts with the translator's footnotes and things. So it's as close as you can get to reading them with all the information without having to learn Greek and Latin and Hebrew yourself. Very useful. So how does the new edition differ from the previous edition? What have you added? Um, So this is the third edition. First edition I did quite quickly and wish I did more to it, but I'd recently had a child at the time and (laughs) I was like, "Mm, it's done enough. I'll publish it. And then I was like, "Uh, I wish I'd done those things. So about six months after that, I published a revised version, which added maps and some extra appendices for timeline of early church things so i did a map which lists the locations of where like the new testament was written different books and Ooh. alongside the list of where all the locations of the text i talked about were written so it sort of gives you an idea of where across the roman empire yeah. everything was and you can sort of see that where new testament texts were written there's like a cluster then of early church texts so you can sort of see how the communities formed around those just to sort of give a more visual I mean, like you read the New Testament, you read history, 
But if you don't really have a good understanding of geography, it's hard to sort of place where all this stuff is happening and how that might affect certain things. Yeah, you know, certain things are written in Rome, some things are written in the Middle East, some things are written in North Africa. It brings a different cultural context to the text then. Yeah. I also did a journey of the first few chapters after the Didache is Ignatius, was Bishop of Antioch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the seven letters from him. He was a student of the Apostle John, so he's a very early link to the Apostles. So what he talks about, I find very important anyway, so I think if he studied under John, what he's saying is as close as we can get to hearing more from the Apostles. Mm. I mean, it'd be hard to think that within the lifetime of John and then him dying, that his own student would then just be like, eh, I'll just make up a bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think he'd be quite faithful and, you know, pass on what he'd learned in a way that was acceptable for an Apostle like John. And then he was actually on his way to being martyred in Rome when he wrote his letters. Mm. He was being fed to the lions in the Colosseum. Mm. So, uh, yeah. So he starts in Antioch, which is all the way in near Syria. You can sort of see, almost like there's maps you see of Paul's missionary journeys. There's something for Ignatius's martyrdom journey. He passes all the way across there. It's a long walk. Mm. And then sort of gets a boat, maybe, to Rome. So he was accompanied by four or six Roman soldiers who took him there. He describes him in some of his letters as being like a pack of lions or something that was with him, or wolves. I don't think they were too kind to him. I think he kept preaching to them on the way. <laughs> so they kept you know, abusing him for that. But uh, he had a captive audience, so why not? And then sort of like Paul, <laughs> travelling and writing letters as he went and under house arrest. Ignatius did the same, wrote letters to all the churches that he helped found or was overseeing as part of his area, or his fellow bishops or friends like Polycarp, another well-known name you might be familiar with. I know that yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. I don't know really anything much to go with it. He's also a disciple of John, yeah. and um, he also he wrote a letter, which is in the book as well, to the church in Philippi. So he was overseeing them and references Paul, because obviously Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians. So Polycarp also wrote a letter to them. He's like, remember, you had Paul here. Remember what he taught you. Study his letter and sort of re-emphasizes those themes. And he sounds very Pauline. If you read his letter without realizing it, you're like, oh, is this Paul? Yeah, nope, it's someone else. I can't remember why I was talking about this now. I asked you a question that sent you off from the wrong direction. Well, not the wrong direction. It's very interesting. Sorry. And oh yeah, new stuff. So that was the last version. This version, I've improved some of the content and footnotes and things like that, just to update things with more stuff I've read over time since doing that one that's useful. And I've also added a new chapter on the accounts of Nicaea. Because obviously, sort of smack bang in the middle of the timeline, the book follows, the Council of Nicaea happens. And there's obviously a big distinction then of the theology and thinking before Nicaea and after Nicaea. Because Nicaea is obviously where they um, defined the deity of Christ, the Trinity, doctrine, the Nicene Creed is produced. It really sort of nails down what is orthodoxy, what has been faithfully passed on. I write about, well, I write against some of the myths that are floating around the internet that, you know, Constantine invented the Trinity, invented the deity of Christ. The canon of uh, scripture was decided at the Council of Nicaea by piling books on a shelf and seeing which ones fall off and which ones stay, the ones that get accepted. You know, there's all sorts of nonsense that gets said about it. A lot of it comes from the Da Vinci Code. Do you remember that book or film? Dan Brown, a few years ago now. Mm. Yeah. He likes to take history and, you know, add an artistic twist to it, which is, you know, fine, artistic license. But then a lot of people watch his films or read the books. 
He's writing he's fiction, yes. open about the fact that he's writing fiction. Yeah, yeah, it's historical fiction, artistic license, fair mm. enough. But a lot of people read it or watch the film and go, this must be how it happened. And then sort of take it as fact, because, you know, why would you talk about history and make stuff up? I mean, who does that? <laughs> because it's fiction. Yeah, so a lot of the half-truths and things that he references from history and then goes, well, they had the council, but also this secret thing happened or whatever, and, you know, make something up for the flurry of his story that then people who don't bother reading history just go, hmm, that sounds legit. <laughs> Terry Pratchett once said that he looked at folklore in the same way that a carpenter looks at trees. I imagine that historical novelists do the same with history. You can chop it up and make something yeah. interesting out of it. Yeah, you can see the merits in that. It makes a good story. It's just when people don't realise they're looking at fiction yeah. and take it as fact. So, you know. I try and do a little bit of myth busting in that chapter and explain what actually happened and why they had the council. And, you know, it was fighting against Arius and Arianism, which how familiar you are with ancient heresies was about. I can remember Dr. Allen talking about him at Mattersea. Yeah. He taught his followers with songs. And so you can imagine him singing, there was a time when he was not, was not, there was a time when he was not, was not. Yes, the good old songs of Dr. Allen. Bless him. I dedicated the book to him actually after I learned of his yeah. passing. Even though I wasn't quite into all of this back then, he definitely was an inspiration of finding church history more interesting yeah. because he, he definitely had a way with his lectures, didn't he? He did. He did. <laughs> so, yeah, that's oh. when he died. Yeah. So, I think it's time to wrap this up now. Where can people buy or read or find out more about your work? On my website, lukejwilson.com. I list my books there, more information, links to my blog, or just look me up on Amazon. You can find stuff on there. Just search the name of the book. Of course, you also have a Facebook page, That Ancient Faith. Oh, yeah, Facebook. Yes, I get on my blog, thatancientfaith.uk. Yeah, I'm around the internet. Okay, and what is your preferred way for readers or followers to get in touch with you or follow you? Facebook's fine, or send me an email through my website. If you want to ask anything, I'm always happy to chat. And I will get all these details somewhere in the description when this goes out. And uh, I hope a lot of people will find you and discover new things and have their thinking challenged and learn new stuff. Yes, I hope so. I'm aiming for this book to be released end of this month at the latest. I should have asked you that. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. I just only realised that we're talking about it, but didn't actually say when it's out. So, yeah. Hopefully, end of January on Amazon. Look out for it, people. Okay. Well, Luke Wilson, thank you very much for being my first guest. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's all right. It's been fun. There you have it, folks. Thanks for listening. I include links in the description to Luke's book and website as well as the blog post I mentioned during the interview, and other places where you can follow Luke and his work. I do welcome your feedback. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of this now, perhaps people you'd like to hear interviewed, or themes that we could cover, please contact me through my Facebook page, or email me at ruth at originaltextpublications.com. Let me know how I can serve you through this medium. Thanks again for being a part of this. Bye for now, folks. Have a good one.